Hello and welcome to you, wherever you are and whenever you are listening to this. Um, this is the January the 23rd Sunday morning sermon for Macedonia North Baptist Church. Um, last week we started a, a sermon series called Setting the Record Straight. We're studying uh, just the first uh, 11 chapters of Genesis to look at the beginning of the world, God's plan for mankind, the fall, uh, the redemptions that God built into place. Those are the things um, that we're going to be looking at. And so over the course of the next several weeks, we'll be looking at the fall. Um, the fall didn't just happen in Genesis chapter 3. It's kind of a progressive event. And so we'll be looking at that as we go. So this is just part one. We're going to be talking about Adam and Eve. Um, this is really more like a prelude to the fall. This is their creation. Um, this is God establishing them a home in the Garden of Eden. So we'll be looking at a lot of... Um, uh, I guess preliminary stuff. We'll be looking at things that discuss for us anyway. Uh, we'll gain a deeper understanding of God's creation. Um, we will definitely understand a, a a better get a better understanding of God's purpose for man on this earth. Uh, we'll also see God's intentions for man. What did God intend for man to have? Uh, how did God want mankind's life to go? Those kinds of things we'll actually see as we look at this passage this morning. Now, before we read the passage, there's something that I would like to, to bring out, and, and that is that there is a certain point of emphasis in these creation narratives. So Genesis chapter 1 gives us an overview or a broad perspective, and I'll talk about that a little bit more in a minute. Um, and the Genesis chapter 2 kind of narrows down on man's experience during creation. So let's look at kind of the point of emphasis in these creation narratives. The main object um, of these narratives is to establish the fact that neither the heavens nor the earth have existed for all eternity. They had a beginning and God made them. To believe anything else uh, besides a divine creation truly is materialism. Not materialistic, like you like nice things, but materialism, which is a form of religion. Uh, because if you do not believe in a creator God, then you believe that you owe your existence to the creation itself. Or in, in um, the case of those that don't view it as a creation, they owe their existence to the to the world, to the cosmos, to the universe, and how that came about. Um, right out of the gate, you know, we we know what is taught in science classrooms in public schools. Uh, we, we understand that they talk about the Big Bang Theory. We understand that they talk about evolution. Um, and when we think about the concept of evolution, there are some scientists that have made some statements about the world coming into existence and evolution. Um, and, and some of these statements, if you hear them in layman's terms, they sound so ridiculous. Um, Carl Sagan, 
He was a very popular uh, astronomer, among other things, had a very popular public broadcast show called The Cosmos uh, back in the 80s. Like 50 million people across the world in 60 different countries have seen this um, show of his. And one thing that he said is that the cosmos is all that is or ever was or ever will be. Um, for him, the material universe is eternal. Uh, the world and all in it developed through natural processes without any divine involvement. Um, he was actually uh, the main, I, I guess you'd say the main focus of his work was trying to find extraterrestrial life. So life outside of or off of Earth. Um, that was one of his big things. Um, for him, he needed to believe that there was something else out there but he rejected the idea of God. Now, a mathematician, Sir Fred Hoyle, um, and this was backed up by other uh, mathematicians, um, they calculated the probability of life evolving on Earth by chance. They gave five billion years. So it was, there was a five billion year window for life to evolve on Earth. Um, and they gave that a one and 10 to the 4,000th power. That's the odds. So one followed by 10,000 zeros. So the odds are virtually zero that life would appear on Earth. We're not talking about evolving into humanity. We're just talking about if you had a world with non-living things and a living thing appears. Basically a 0% chance. So they also, uh, some of these uh, mathematicians also calculated the probability of life evolving anywhere else in the universe. <clears throat> they assumed 100 billion galaxies. In each of those galaxies, there were 100 billion stars. Um, and each one of those stars had a planet like ours. Uh, roughly the same distance, roughly the same other factors such as atmosphere and things like that. Um, when they did the work on that, they allowed a window of 20 billion years time and even still, the chances were virtually zero that life would appear on its own or through any kind of naturally observed process that we know occurs uh, on Earth or places like it. Okay, so Hoyle said the probability of the evolutionary origin of life was about equal to the probability of a tornado sweeping through a junkyard and creating or building, uh, assembling a Boeing 747. Um, the odds are roughly the same there mathematically. Um, he concluded that natural evolutionists believed in mathematical miracles. Um, he had his own very strange views, but he did not believe in natural evolution. He believed that there were other influences. Um, so, against all the odds, against all the math, and against all actual science, um, materialists still believe that the cosmos and the myriad of life forms on Earth evolved all on their own, blindly, without purpose, because the only other alternative is to believe there is a God who made it, and they will not do this. So, 
this refusal to admit creation to the table as a valid explanation explains why all the interest and money spent in space, in space exploration. Many who subscribe to scientism are bent on finding a planet out there somewhere from which life must have come via comet or meteorite. Um, of course, if any planet supporting life of any kind is ever found, that just m removes the question one step further back, how did life get on that planet? Um, so the people that want to reject these creation narratives that we are currently studying, they have no legitimate, valid argument to replace divine creation. They just don't. This is what they try to push into our schools. This is this is how they build a lot of their theories. And this is why billions and billions of dollars has been spent in space exploration. They are seeking life somewhere else. They're seeking another place where this miracle has occurred so that they can then say, look, it's happened in other places, so it obviously can happen here. The math doesn't support it. The science doesn't support it. That's just where they are. Um, so... When we, when we look at the main objective of God's record of creation, the main objective is to show us that all that we see and all that we know is not eternal. It has a beginning point. That beginning point is when God chose to create. And so that's important for us to remember. Okay, so let's get into the sermon and the sentence here. Um, in love, God created a perfect place for man to exist in harmony. That's harmony with himself, man with man, harmony with nature, and harmony with the Lord. Um, that was creation. God made a perfect place, a perfect time, perfect circumstances for us to exist in harmony with each other, with nature, and with God himself. Okay, so I want to read to you Genesis chapter 2. Uh, this is Genesis chapter 2, verse 4. We'll read the rest of the chapter through verse 25. Genesis chapter 4 through verse 25. It says, These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now that's an introductory verse. Um, it's not saying that there's a different creation story or a different concept. We'll talk about that in just a minute. This is an introductory verse because we're about to zoom in to man's experience during creation. That's, that's what God is doing. Verse 5, it says, When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused uh, it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first was the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedellum and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. 
It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of uh, Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you surely shall die. The Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Okay, so let's start with the obvious question. Genesis chapter 1 tells us about the creation of the world. Genesis chapter 2 tells us about the creation of the world. Are there two separate creation stories? Um, there are some people that make some claims um, saying that there are some discrepancies uh, between Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. They raise some different points, basically five different um, discrepancies people point out. So we'll go through those kind of quickly. We'll answer them uh, just as quickly. Um, instead of six days, which we find in Genesis 1, in Genesis 2 it says, in the day that the Lord made the heavens and the earth. Um, another discrepancy people say is that the world uh, beginning with a mass of water is in Genesis chapter 2, or Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. It has land appearing first. Um, some critics of the Bible uh, believe that Genesis chapter chapter 1 reflects a Babylonian beginning to the world, the chaotic water world, um, and Genesis chapter 2 reflects a Canaanite view, uh, background just kind of the dry desert view. Some people believe um, that the Bible is kind of covering its bases by giving a Babylonian view and a Canaanite view of the creation of the world. Um, another objection that people have is um, instead of the simultaneous creation of both male and female, male and female, he created them in chapter 1. Uh, in Genesis chapter 2, you have the man formed first and then the woman formed afterwards. Um, another objection, um, and, and 4 and 5 are basically one objection kind of um, spread out. So instead of plants on day 3 and then man on day 6, um, as in Genesis 1, Genesis 2 has man coming first, and then that's followed by plant life. Um, and the same deal, instead of creatures coming before man in Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 2, we have man, and then God brings the animals forth for the sake of man to find a companion for him. Now, um, primarily, these difficulties 
come to us because people with a Western mindset, um, we think differently than those with an Eastern mindset. If you've ever studied any other language, you know that this kind of thing is true because the way that we form our sentences in English um, is almost never the way that sentences are formed in other languages. Um, the mind simply works differently in different places. Um, and so, whereas in a uh, Western world, we think of things in a chronological sense. First this, next this, next this. We look in steps. Whereas in the Eastern mindset, they are able to look at things more in a parallel sense. In other words, chapter one and chapter two are running parallel to each other. And in chapter two, we get a little bit deeper dive into the creation of man himself. So um, th there was a, um, uh, uh, an explanation provided for each of these um, from an Eastern scholar. And the first thing he said was the, the six days and the one day. In the day, in Genesis chapter 2, has the general sense of in the time of or in the period that God created the earth. It's not morning and evening was the first day, but it's more in that day, in that time period. Genesis chapter 2 does not recap the entire creation story. It simply depicts things as they were uh, at the closing phase of creation when only man was yet missing from the scene. Um, so there's really only a contradiction uh, if the reader insists on separating Genesis chapter 2 from what happened before and what comes after. Uh, that's the only reason that there would be any kind of conflict there. Um, now, in the, the second objection, Genesis chapter 2 contains no story of the beginning of creation. It doesn't mention the hosts of heaven. It doesn't mention the sea and the fish or cattle, uh, plant life. It doesn't mention those things. Um, it, it just simply is not trying to tell the creation of the world. The focus is getting to the point of the creation of mankind. So that's, that's the answer there between the two differences. There's a whole different focus on, on what the story is actually being told. Now, uh, the third objection, um, the, the separation of the genders, at, uh, Adam and Eve being created at different times. Um, in Genesis chapter 1, man is presented as one of many creations. So it says that God created him male and female. It does not rule out the possibility that mankind was created male first and then female. It just simply says that they were created with two genders. Um, so Genesis 2 gives a detailed description of that creation. Now, really to answer both four and five, to answer both the plants coming before man and the beasts coming before man in Genesis chapter one, and then it seems in Genesis chapter two that you're, you're seeing man and then the plants, man and then the animals. Um, the, uh, th th this is not saying that this is the first time that God created these plants or created these animals. It just says that God caused them to burst forth from the earth at this point. And so God may have been recreating these animals or, or bringing them in from where they uh, had been. It doesn't mean that God was creating for the first time these animals at this particular time. So 
duplications like Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2 may seem strange to our minds, um, but it was not at all strange in, in the uh, ancient Near East um, because their way of thinking was a parallel way. So, um, in, in brief, the, the Genesis chapter 1 gives you an outline of the account of the making of everything, and man was one of those creatures, whereas Genesis chapter 2 gives you the story of the creation of man as the central being of the moral world. And so that's kind of the picture. So, now let's get into man in the garden. Let's look at God's creation of mankind himself in the Garden of Eden. Some call Genesis chapter 2, verse 4 through 25 a second creation story. That's not what it is. It's really the beginning of the fall story. Um, this is the beginning of the fall of the world. So that's why the facts of creation are set forward in a different manner and why the designation used for God changes during this section. Okay, so the name for God in, in Genesis chapter 1 all the way through Genesis chapter 2, verse 3, is uh, Elohim, uh, which identifies God as a power. It's mainly speaking about his power. It says God made. Um, but in beginning in Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, it uses the name Yahweh Elohim, or the Lord God. Um, and and that, that designation is used 20 times. God is not referred to simply as God or Elohim uh, in that chapter at all. And this is God's personal name. It speaks to his grace and his willingness to show himself to men and to answer prayers. Obviously, we know that this would eventually be the name that God would reveal to Moses when Moses was asking for the name of God. So it's connected to his covenant. It's connected to his faithfulness to his people. Um, Elohim fits the earlier context because we are seeing the power of God breaking forth into a brand new world, whereas Yahweh fits this later context because God came down to walk with the humans in Eden. So it, it, it makes sense that there would be two different names of God for two different stories. So the introductory statement in, in verse two, uh, chapter 2, verse 4, um, it indicates that we're starting a new story entirely. You're going to see this formula 10 times uh, in in the, the, the chapters that we will cover of Genesis. It happens again in chapter 6, chapter 10, chapter 11. Uh, it, will, it goes on. Uh, it's also in chapter 25, chapter 19, chapter 36, and chapter 37. Um, this doesn't mean generations as in the human descendants of a person. This means the generations as in this is the beginning. This is the story of this event. So this is the story of mankind, um, the story of mankind, and unfortunately, the story of the fall of mankind. So when we get to verse 5 and 6, they set forth the situation prior to man's creation. They show both the suitability and the need for mankind's existence. So verse 5 describes a barren desert with neither shrub nor plant in the field. Uh, and, and then it explains two reasons why the world is the way that it is. One, God was not sending rain. And two, man was not there to till the soil. Rain would not have been sufficient uh, by itself, and the tilling would not have been sufficient by itself. So one commentator said, God is not a tiller of the soil, and man is not a sender of rain. Um, what we understand is that man has a role in this earth. We have a responsibility uh, in this earth that God has given us. 
So according to verse 6, the earth was not totally arid. Uh, even though there wasn't rain, there was, and, and the Hebrew word there is Edo, uh, there was a, a moisture. Um, now this could have been, uh, it's kind of difficult to translate, so it could have been mist. That's how the ESV translates it. Um, dew, it could have been some kind of flood, uh, groundwater. Um, it could have even been water coming out of a cloud. Uh, we just don't know. It just means that there was water that came um, uh, up to the surface of the earth. So the creation of man is given a lot greater detail in verse 7 than we got in chapter 1. Um, God the craftsman formed the earthling from the earth. And so that's an important thing for us to remember. Uh, if you do a chemical analysis of mankind, what you will find is the components that make us are the same components that make the earth itself. And so um, that, gives us, that gives us a very clear picture of how we were made. Now, here's the part that no scientist can truly discover. That spark of life. God breathed his own breath into the nostrils of mankind, and that's when we came to life. Now, in ancient worlds, the king, and this really goes all the way up into sometimes in the 1700s, depending on the area of the world, but uh, the kings believed that they had the breath of God. They believed that they were the image bearers of God, um, so they believed that they were better. Um, if, you've, if you've heard people talk about nobility, the aristocracy, kings, thinking that they were better than the people that they ruled, that they were part divine, um, what we find in Genesis chapter 2 is that all mankind was given that breath of life. What we find in Genesis chapter 1 is that all mankind was created in the image of God. So although it is a re relatively new idea within the scope of human history, all men are created equal. And that is important. And you can't back that up without Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. So it's very important that we recognize that. So from verse 8 to verse 15, uh, we get a description of Eden. Um, since this is where the fall takes place, it's important that we get a, a good uh, description of what Eden was like. Um, of the many trees that God made to grow uh, in that garden, two trees um, form the central part of this story. Um, they are, we've, we envision them anyway in the center of the garden, the tree of life, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So it's important for us to recognize that the tree of life is not magical in any way. The way that it's written, it is God that gives life, not the tree. That was just what the tree was called. So it emphasizes the planter, not the plant itself. Uh, the second tree that's singled out for emphasis is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, there are some theories about what this tree is or what it represents, um, but I think it's going to be pretty clear what the actual uh, tree would have been. There are those that say that this, this tree of knowledge refers to like a sexual knowledge. Um, they point out that in other ways, when the Bible refers to knowing, it is in that sense. Um, but there's some pretty serious problems with this view right away. Um, 
if you make this that kind of knowledge, then you have to ascribe that kind of knowledge to God also. And that's not consistent with anything else in the Bible. It also seems to contradict the, the end of Genesis chapter 2, whereas it seems that, that before the fall, before they partook of that fruit, Adam and Eve were already one flesh. And so it does not seem um, that this is a the good idea. Now, there's another idea that people... Uh, tend to have um, that it refers to comprehensive knowledge or omniscience like God. Um, people say that, that, that it has to do with knowing everything. Um, in some places in the Old Testament, the expression good and evil suggests everything or anything. Um, but this suggestion doesn't hold water because nothing in the text suggests that Adam and Eve ever gained universal knowledge when they ate it. Um, they continued to see in part and know only in part after eating that fruit. So here's the best idea here. This phrase, the knowledge of good and evil, refers to moral autonomy. Um, in other words, mankind took it upon themselves to decide what was right and good for them and what was evil. Um, when we look at um, the overall story of the Bible, that seems to fit very clearly. You've got Solomon praying that he would be able to discern um, good from evil, um, that that was a thing that he wanted to be able to do. If we look at the Judges account where it says that each person did what was right in their own eyes, um, that is a very negative statement um, because mankind is not the moral authority. God is. And so, when we try to decide what is right without reference to God and His revealed will, we always tend to go towards evil, and that seems to be what the tree of the knowledge of good and evil represents, is mankind trying to put himself in the place of God and judge right from wrong. Um, so, just kind of briefly, the, the location of the Garden of Eden, it's impossible to know that. Um, there's lots of geographical statements in the passage. We know uh, where the Ta Tigris River is now. We know where the Euphrates River is now. We know where they join. These other two rivers are not identifiable, but if they're going to join where the Tigris and Euphrates join, then, then, then we know that. And we know that it is over towards the land that you know, in ancient times was known as Mesopotamia. Those rivers flow into the Persian Gulf, so we have a pretty general idea about that. But there are some things um, that we need to be fully aware of. The course of rivers change over time. This is before the Great Flood. Uh, so after the Great Flood, the course of rivers could have changed very drastically. Um, we're just not going to be able to point out where um, this this place actually was. And so that, that's important um, for us to know. Um, a lot of people want to try to find the Garden of Eden. They think that there's some religious significance there, but that's not something that, that we can do. Um, in the narrative, it points out Assyria. It, it, it definitely points out Cush, which would have been Ethiopia, or, or Nubia, which was north of Ethiopia. Those are two very different locations. Um, and so it's going to be difficult for us to determine exactly where it is. Now, it does say that it was in the east, um, and that would almost certainly have to be within reference to Jerusalem. Um, so maybe somewhere over Iran, Iraq, in that general vicinity. Um, but still, it's going to be impossible for us to pinpoint where it was. But here is something that's very important. God placed man in Eden 
and charged him to care for it. Um, the point is clear that work entered the picture long before sin did. Um, if man had never sinned, he would still be working. Work and a sense of purpose is intrinsic to human life. Um, that Protestant work ethic, what we're supposed to have, that, that willingness to do the hard work, um, that is rooted solidly in the biblical creation account. We were workers before we were sinners, and so that's important. It's also important to notice, against what many scientists will, will tell you or what they call historians at this particular point, mankind in his primitive state uh, he wasn't merely a scavenger of acorns and, and berries. The very first thing, he wasn't even a hunter or a nomad. The very first thing he was involved in was horticulture. He was managing the garden, these trees that gave forth fruit. Um, after the fall, he descended into cultivating fields and tending to herds, but he still had a home. He had a settled way of living. Only when sin had done its worst did he degenerate into wandering barbarity. Um, that's what we have to recognize is that when science and history points us to the fact that we were first hunter and gatherers, we were not. We were first managers of a great garden. Then we eventually became farmers of great fields and, and, and shepherds of, of, of great herds. But if mankind degenerated beyond that, it was not because God left them just to find and scratch out a meager living. It was because sin drove them further and further away from God and his intended plan. In the Garden of Eden, mankind got very generous permission. They were granted vast freedom. They could do virtually anything they wanted to do. They were given one single prohibition so that their freedom wasn't absolute. Uh, do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's not that this tree was evil um, and then the rest of the trees were good. Uh, it was simply, uh, and it wasn't that all the other fruit was edible and this fruit was poisonous. It's simply that God gave them a boundary. He could very well have told them that they could not go beyond this river. Or they could not climb this hill. Um, the whole issue was whether mankind would yield loving obedience to God. Um, when he says, In the day of your eating of it, dying you shall die, or you shall surely die when you eat it. He's not saying that it's poison and it's going to kill you right away. He's saying that you will then fall under a death sentence. Even in America, when we um, judge someone guilty of a capital crime and we sentence them to capital punishment, while they are condemned, they are not yet dead. And so the eating of the, the tree, the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, it did not kill Adam and Eve, and, and, and Satan tricked Adam and Eve in that point. It isn't that it killed them, it's that it put them under a death sentence. And that is the same death sentence that we are all under, even to this day. So that's something that we need to remember, um, is that that was the plan. This was an announcement of a death sentence. Now let's look at man and woman together. The making of woman in verse 18 begins with the noting of man's lack of a suitable companion. Um, God made this decision, not man. God said it's not good for man to be alone. So that's something that we need to notice. Um, God had all kinds of animal life come by 
Adam so that he can consider it uh, as a suitable uh, helper, but also so that he could name it. Um, on a basic level, that helps us understand why animals are called what they're called. But on a little bit deeper level, we can see that this implies that mankind controls the animals. Giving of a knowledge, giving of a name expresses authority. Now, evolutionists picture early man as hardly more than a brute. Uh, he's lacking intelligence. He's um, uh, developing speech gradually after a long period of uh, brute silence and uh, just savage grunts. Adam was created with the ability to speak. Uh, speech leapt at once from the brain of mankind. Giving names to all the animals, presumably names suited to each kind, displays a very high level of intelligence. Um, when all the names uh, were given, none were found to be suitable to man uh, as his companion, so it was God's judgment, not man, again, that it was not good for man to be alone, so God provided a fit partner. Now, this is a very, very important passage here. The creation narrative suggests at least two things about God's model for marriage. One, he meant for it to be heterosexual. Uh, when he made a partner for Adam, he made Eve. He made a woman. Um, we look across the world today and people are breaking out from that mold. They have been breaking out for it always, um, but now they're proud about it. They're declaring it to the heavens. God intended for man to be with woman. He did not intend for man to be with man, and he did not intend for woman to be with woman. That's very important. That is part of the created order. That is part of what setting the record straight is all about. God has an intended design for love and marriage and human relationship. Now, here's the other very, very important part. He meant for it to be monogamous. He made only one woman for one man. Now, multiple partners, premarital relations, extramarital relations, all of this abound. But let's understand, God intended for one man to be with one woman for all of their lives. This is very, very important. We're going to see more of this in just a minute. So she was made as a helper as uh, in front of him. Um, also, she would be uh, like his South Pole to the North Pole. She would be the, the balance to him. She would be the complement to him. Um, she is to be his helper, uh, but that actually means like to save or to deliver. She's going to save him from his unsuitable solitude, um, from his sides. It, it might indicate a rib as the ESV uh, almost interprets as it translates, um, or some other bone, or it could have even been a piece of his flesh. All we know is that it was from Adam's side. Um, it was not that Eve herself was taken from Adam. Adam wasn't split at that particular time, uh, but that the raw material for Eve was taken from Adam. That's the point. Now, world-famous commentator Matthew Henry, uh, he puts it like this, Eve was not made out of Adam's head to rule over him, not out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal to him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be loved. So, woman is man's counterpart in creation, made from him and for him. Um, we believe, uh, based on the biblical record, uh, that Adam and Eve are not necessarily equal, but they complement one another. Adam 
and Eve were different. Man today is different from woman. Those roles are distinct and they are defined not by man, but by God. When people try to say gender is fluid or gender's on a scale, they are not carefully reading Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2. God decides what a man is and what a woman is. God makes those distinctions. And not only that, but he has also set their roles. That is clear from the Bible and it's something that we need to say as a church. It needs to be made clear. Now, Genesis chapter 2 verse 23 holds the very first recorded words of a human being. These are almost exactly the same words that were spoken by the northern tribes when they visited David. Uh, we are bone of your bone and flesh of your flesh. Um, uh, that's what Adam says. This was not a statement of relationship. Um, that we have the same roots. In other words, we come from the same place. But this was a statement of loyalty. We will support you in all kinds of circumstances. Uh, taken in this light, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh becomes a covenant statement of the man's commitment to the woman. That's what's important. Circumstances will not change this commitment. How long does God intend for marriage to last? He intends for it to last for a lifetime. Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh means that I will always be yours. You will always be mine. There will be no dividing. There will be no separating. When it says to forsake or to uh, forsake the, the parents and cling um, to the wife, this means to sever one's loyalty and to begin another loyalty, um, leaving even one's parents in the interest of oneness with this companion. So cling suggests both the passion and the permanence that should mark the marriage. So joined, the Lord Adam and the Lady Eve became one flesh. Now, uh, does this mean um, this? Does this refer to the to the to the marital union, the sexual union of mankind? Does this refer to the children being conceived, the two people become one child? Is that what it means, or is it the spiritual and emotional union that marriage involves? All of these are involved in one flesh. The whole gambit is composed in this marriage covenant that God makes with mankind. So it is relational. It, it, it is uh, about multiplying and filling the earth. It is about a spiritual and emotional union. Um, when I talk to young couples about marriage, um, I tell them that it is not two people entering into this covenant, but three. And that's important for us to recognize because God is also involved. It is not just a physical relationship. It is not just a financial arrangement. It is not just to propagate the species, but it is also a relationship between man and woman and God. All three must be present. So a final note. Um, this is just stressing the closeness and intimacy of this couple is that they were both naked and they still felt no sense of shame in each other's presence. Nakedness in the Bible usually refers to humiliation, uh, but they were naked in Eden and they felt no shame about it. And so that's, that's just a, a, a point to notice the harmony with which man and woman lived and that the harmony that they had with God uh, at the same time. So, just to wrap this up, so getting into the conclusion, everything in Genesis 2 points to man as the crown of creation, God's supreme work. Man alone bears the image of God. Also, there was original harmony between the Creator and 
his creation. He walked with the pair in Eden. We'll see that in Genesis chapter 3. But God came down in the cool of the evening and walked with Adam and Eve. Um, this was this was true harmony. This was true communion. Um, so there was there was harmony. He, he walked with the pair. Uh, there was harmony between male and female. Um, the unity implied in, in, in verse 26, male and female, he created them, is stated explicitly in chapter 2, verse 23, where it says, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Uh, and between man and nature. Adam named the animals and lived without fear among them. That's an important part that we notice is that God and man had harmony. Man and man had harmony. Man and nature had harmony. This was God's intended design. He did not intend for us to live at odds with the world. He did not intend for us to live at odds with one another. So what is war? War is a product of sin. What is the, the, the fear and the enmity between man and the animal kingdom? That's a product of sin. What is the constant fighting and disagreement and, and attacks, even verbal attacks, between man and other man? That is a product of sin. What is the wholesale rejection of God's existence? What is the desperate... Um, uh, effort to prove the existence of man in any way other than by the work of God, that is the enmity, that is a result of sin. Okay, so just as a side issue, just, just to point out, um, there is no evidence that this this passage was intended to be mythical. Um, it was not Fiction designed to illustrate the emergence of man. Without question, the rest of the Bible takes Adam and Eve as historical characters. Okay, so this is where we're going to leave off this morning. So what we have is God has made man. God has made woman. He has brought them together in harmony. He has given them a place to live. They live a high-level existence. They are not hunter-gatherers. They, they are cultivating the most wonderful garden that the world would ever know. What we see here is that God intended for man to have an enjoyable life. We look across this broken world today. We look across the sin. We look across the pain, the sickness. We look at wars. We look at the strife between nations. We see all of these things. All of this is a product of sin. All of this lostness, all of this pain and sorrow is what Jesus came to relieve. And so when we look at Adam and Eve, we see a little bit of a glimpse of what life is going to be like for us in eternity, but we also see the love of God and the plan of God for our lives. And so what I want to leave you with is just an encouragement. If you like what you see in Genesis chapter 2, um, just a harmony between man and nature. If you love this creation that God has made, even in its now broken and fallen state, understand that God is bringing us to a place like this again. There's a difference, though. In Genesis chapter 2, man's existence is in a garden. But as we read late in the book of Revelation, man's existence is in a city. He is bringing us all together to live in unity, to live in harmony. You know, mankind tries to do this in our own way. We 
live on our own, but then we come into cities and we do our business and we have our relationships with one another and all those other things. Uh, but it's always broken and it's always wrong because there's crime, there's corruption, there's uh, evil governors, and there's all those other things that, that, that ruin these cities that are meant to be for our good, but they ultimately are for our bad. But God is bringing us to a place where there is joy, where there is harmony. Imagine in this day and age going to a city in America but not having fear, not being concerned about what the other people are going to do. That's the kind of joy that God is going to bring us into at the end of days. But it's only for those that trust in Jesus as their Savior because all of this wonderful life that we see in Genesis chapter 2, we are about to see it being systematically crushed in chapter 3, in chapter 4, 5, and 6, because what we see is the complete abandonment of God, rejection of His ways, rejection of His wisdom, in favor of mankind. What we need in salvation is to reject mankind, to reject our ways, to reject our choices, and to follow after Jesus Christ. And so Genesis chapter 2 is a reminder of what can be when we turn away from our sin. And so I want to leave you with that. Next week we'll get into the fall and, and what that meant. And even at that very moment, we'll begin to see God redeeming mankind to himself. Thank you for listening. I hope it was an encouragement. And I look forward to being with you in one form or another next week as well.